Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Jeremy Suri, who is the Chair for Leadership in Global Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. He is a professor in the University's Department of History and the LBJ School of Public Affairs. Professor Suri is the co-author or editor of nine books on contemporary politics and foreign policy, and most recently, The, the Impossible Presidency, The Rise and Fall of America's Highest Office. Welcome, Jeremy. Thank you for having me on, Gil. Absolutely. Um, I want to start with uh, one of your papers entitled The Cost of Victory, uh, in which you say this is about World War II. 60 million people died in the World War II, more than in any other war before. Uh, the majority of those killed were civilians, and they lived on all continents. Nearly every human family felt scarred in some way by the war. The luckiest ones did not lose a loud one, but they still experienced dislocation and deprivation. Uh, you want to you want to talk a bit about that paper and um, and really you know sort of set the stage for uh, some of the conversations that might come after that. Absolutely, uh, and it's such a an appropriate place to start because even with all the extraordinary changes of the last uh, seventy years, we are still living in a world deeply affected by the Second World War. Um, and one of the reasons I wrote that paper was actually for a larger collection of studies of the legacies of World War II, was because we, we forget that legacy, and when we forget it, we don't understand the world that we're living in. Uh, the yeah. devastation and destruction caused by World War II meant that many societies had to completely rebuild themselves. Uh, they were not building themselves without a history, but they were building themselves in entirely new ways. And if we think about the structure of what becomes the European Union, it is very much an outgrowth of the rebuilding of Europe after World War II. If we think about the independence of countries like India, 
which had been part of European empires, that is an outgrowth of the reduction in power in Europe after World War II and the mobilization of countries like India that were part of the war. And if we think about America's global role, the presence of the United States, the most obvious example of this, the global presence of the U.S. dollar, how the dollar is the de facto reserve currency for the world, that was not a decision made uh, absent of war. That was a consequence of the war and the United States becoming the reserve currency for financing the war against fascism and then the reserve currency for rebuilding the world. Uh, the challenge to that, of course, was from the communist world and the collapse of communism has left the United States, even today with all the troubles that we have, as the first among equals around the world. So, so that's really the point there, that the costs of the war are costs we're still dealing with in the new institutions and practices that define our international behavior today. Right, yeah. And we often forget this, right? You say many of the world's wealthiest cities, including Berlin, Prague, uh, Dresden, and Tokyo, were reduced to rubble. Every industrial country except the U.S. came out of the war with, uh, with its resources, agriculture, and manufacturing largely destroyed. And so, you know, I guess the World War II set a, set a, set a, uh, initial conditions, um, not, not only for the U.S., but many, almost all countries around the world. I think that's right. And it, it created both opportunity and challenges. Uh, in, in having to rebuild these societies, it meant that many of these societies were far behind the United States. It meant they were dependent upon the United States as they had not been before. And it meant the United States was dependent upon them. But it also gave these societies an opportunity to do things they hadn't done before. Uh, Japan is a classic example of this. Although the emperor is still uh, kept in Japan, Japan writes an entirely new constitution with American assistance, but it's largely Japanese written. And it's a constitution that actually changes the way Japan operates, creating what has been one of the most vibrant democracies in East Asia as a consequence. Right, right. And um, the, the Soviet Union, uh, even though they lost a very large number of people, uh, I don't know what the number is, 20 million or something like 30 that? Million, 30 million, 30 million. So 30 out of the 60 million uh, actually out of Soviet Union? Yes. Wow, okay. Uh, but it, it seems like they came out of that um, with, with uh, so slightly in a better position than most of the Western European countries, right? Well, they came out of the war with a few advantages. Uh, one was the occupation of East Germany, which they yeah. used for various resources, including uranium. The Soviet atomic bomb project is dependent upon resources from East Germany as well as scientists from East Germany and elsewhere. So they had occupation of territories uh, west of their borders. Um, and they acquired a certain status. Soviet historians will say that the regime lasted as long as it did because it now had the prestige of winning this big war. And, and, and they really did win it in Europe even more than the United States did in the, in the kind of fighting they did. So those were advantages, but they were so far behind the United States because whereas the United States increased its industrial capacity, think of Detroit and other parts of the country producing more than ever before at full employment, the Soviet Union lost its most productive generation and it lost its resources. And so even during the height of the Cold War, they were so far behind the United States. We often attribute this to the problems of communism, maybe, but I think it was also because World War II had a much more devastating effect on the Soviet economy than it did on the U.S. economy. Right. And um, the fact that the U.S. 
uh, you know, it always used to be an economic power, you say, but not a military power per se. Uh, but they went on to, you know, the, the European recovery program, commonly called the Marshall Plan. Uh, and uh, U.S. will invest uh, more than $12 billion in uh, invest in Europe to build it back up. Yes, that's correct. That's correct. And, and probably half as much in Japan as well. Um, it, 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 it transforms the United States' role in the world. Traditionally, the United States had been a country that traded with the rest of the world but had a very small military and a very small diplomatic corps. We didn't even have a foreign service, really, until the late 19th century. Um, so the United States was not engaged as deeply in the world because we didn't need to be engaged in the world deeply. After World War II, you have a complete about-face where the United States becomes firmly committed to a major economic presence, providing aid to countries that are rebuilding as part of our effort to rebuild global capitalism. Also a major military presence, our soldiers in Germany, in South Korea, in Okinawa, they, they still haven't left. They're still there in smaller numbers, but they're yeah, still right. there. And most important, we create a large standing military and national security structure in the United States. We did not have a CIA. We did not have a National Security Council. We did not have a unified Department of Defense, uh, anything on the scale of today, before World War II. So that is a major change in America's structure and its presence in the world. So, so was there a sort of a positive feedback uh, by U.S. doing this, meaning uh, contributing um, to those countries and building them back up? Was there a positive feedback to uh, American industry? Yes, absolutely. Um, it's too simple to say that it was a simple, you know, straight line industry's interest and therefore they pushed for this. It was a combination of three factors. First, there was the recognition that the Great Depression had been caused in part by the unfinished business of World War I, by devastated, indebted societies overseas, mm -hmm. and then by restrictions on trade. During the 1920s and 1930s, the United States had actually increased its tariffs and reduced trade and pulled its gold out of other countries. And so there was a commitment to avoid those mistakes, which meant the United States, from an economic and political standpoint, had to be more engaged, more open, and sharing its resources more for its own effects to avoid another depression. In 1945, most Americans feared we'd go back to depression. They wanted to take these actions to avoid that, those in industry and those in other dimensions of society. Second element was, yes, industry had achieved full employment during World War II and was very profitable largely from government contracts, and uh, they didn't want to give those up. So there right. was an interest in this. But third, I'd say, and perhaps most important, there was a vision, uh, and you can see it as good or bad, depending on your point of view, of a global capitalist system that would provide more prosperity for everyone by creating vibrant industrial markets where certain countries would provide the resources, other countries would provide the inexpensive labor, and other countries would provide the advanced knowledge, the United States being one of them. It was a vision of global capitalism, and, and the believers in that had unique power now coming out of World War II. They were not popular in the U.S. before World War II, but these figures were popular after World War II. Right, yeah. And, and you conclude this one, Jeremy, by saying, as Americans return home from the battlefields, the mix of sacrifice and opportunities at the stage for post-war growth, uh, World War II destroyed the old world and built what Henry Luce called the American century. Um, 
I want to jump into a related, um, not quite related, but <laughs> but another article entitled "What American Century," and uh, you say one problem with the arguments that bemoan or cheer the end of the American century is that there never was one, uh, despite the United States' moment of economic and atomic predominance after World War II. The United States immediately faced strategic challenges from the Soviet Union and soon from China, among others. And so, so you're arguing here, uh, you know, sort of um, our romantic vision, our romantic understanding, so to speak, uh, of the American century. You're saying there was nothing; it was nothing like that. That's correct. I, I, the the piece on the American century, I think, is a classic example of what uh, we try to do as historians, and it doesn't always make us friends, but we try to combat nostalgia. There's a difference yeah. between nostalgia and history. Nostalgia is how you wish the past had been, and maybe <laughs> how someone told you it was. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and history is how it really was. Right. And there's no doubt the United States had unprecedented power and to some extent unprecedented wealth after World War II. But the lesson is that it wasn't an American century in the sense that the United States could get what it wanted. It's an old Greek story. The more powerful you are, the more requirements you have for your power. There's never enough. And there always are new challenges. And small challenges uh, multiplying can be as dangerous as a few big challenges. And so my point there was that if you look, as I have it, what how American decision makers thought about the world in the 1940s and 50s, they knew they were the strongest and the wealthiest, but they did not feel secure. In fact, they felt more insecure because they had more problems to deal with, problems of reconstructing societies after World War II, problems of new countries emerging, and they didn't know what, how those new countries, again, like India, Ghana, and others were going to operate. Yeah. And then they had a Soviet threat, too. So right. uh, it was not, it was not you know, a utopia. <laughs> Yeah, so th this was a, a sort of an untested uh, kind of a pro problem, right? Uh, hostile, aggressive governments, you say, in North Korea, China, North Vietnam, redoubled their efforts to undermine U.S. interests. And, um, and, and you also say that the reality is that throughout the Cold War, uh, that, you know, uh, after the World War II, American military power rarely produced the battlefield dominance that leaders and citizens expected. Uh, and so we dabbled in many, um, many conflicts, uh, but you say we, we haven't really dominated any one of them. I think that's right. And, and, and I'm so glad you brought that up because I think it's one of the most important insights that uh, even our well-informed military leaders don't recognize. I've tried to make this point directly to some of our military leaders. The historical record uh, is pretty clear. The United States has had a, an almost unmatched military um, since the end of World War II. We've spent more than we've ever spent, and we've trained soldiers better than we've ever trained them before with the best equipment in the world. Um, but yet, uh, we really have not won a war since World War II. We did not win the Korean War. The war ended where it started, uh, after uh, about 30,000 American deaths and millions of, of Korean deaths. Uh, the Vietnam War was certainly not a victory. Uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, not victories. It's, that's not to criticize the military. It's to say that military dominance doesn't allow you always to get your way on the battlefield. We have been more secure because our strong military makes it hard for us us or attack the places we but that is different defending with a strong military is different from coercing another society 
And I think winning wars in the sense of coercing another society, a North Korea, an Iran, a Vietnam, to do things differently requires something other than military force. Military force might be necessary but not sufficient. It requires diplomacy. It requires alliances. Uh, it requires economic, um, uh, creative economic tools. Yeah. And we have overemphasized the military. And, and, you know, Exhibit A most recently is Iraq. We, we, we put so much in there, probably $6 trillion dollars. And thousands of lives, millions of other people, hundreds of thousands of other people's lives lost. And by every measure, what we have in Iraq now is worse for American interests probably than what we had before. Right, right. And and there's another side to this also, Jeremy. You say Cold War historians have chronicled in detail how allies um, from Paris to Paris and Bonn to Tokyo, Tehran and Tel Aviv resisted and manipulated Washington. Uh, while benefiting from American protection markets and resources. So it's not only war, it's really strategic actions by others to to really manipulate what uh, what they could get from us. Yes. Um, I, I have to say, I, and, and I admit my bias, even though I'm a scholar, you know, my, my father comes from India, so I have a certain bias, and I call this the Pakistan problem, <laughs> uh, which is that, and it's just one of many examples, but it's a very acute one that's true for about 40 years now, 50 years. Uh, the Pakistani government uh, is completely dependent upon the United States military assistance, hmm. but the United States ends up getting manipulated by the Pakistanis time and again because the Pakistani government threatens that if we don't support them in the ways they want to be supported, that they will collapse and things will be even worse. Right. And, and so it gives them leverage on us. Uh, the, most, the clearest example of this is during the war in Afghanistan in 2003, 2004, the United States was giving military aid to Pakistan, which the Pakistanis were giving part of to the Taliban, which we were fighting in <laughs> Afghanistan. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and this dynamic is, again, in no way unique to Pakistan. It's just an extreme example. You can see Taiwan doing this. You can see various other countries doing this time and again. It's what Churchill, Winston Churchill, called the tyranny of the weak. And it continues, is your point. So Washington's international leadership was always limited, uncertain, and contested, you say. And uh, in many ways, nothing has changed, it sounds like. I think, I think in some ways things have not changed uh, because we haven't grappled with this history. One of the reasons it's so important to study history is not only is it interesting and hopefully enlightening, it allows us to ask new questions today. And too often we don't ask these questions. Are, are we using our resources most effectively? Are, we, are there better ways we can do things? And I think the questions have to be asked in ways, just as you're asking them, that are not political, but are about the objective analysis of our resources. And I believe we are misusing our resources. And that's not because of Republicans or Democrats. It's because we're not asking the right questions about our history and how it relates to today. Right, right. Yeah, so before we go on to you know some of the contemporary issues, you have another article, Jeremy, Nixon and Brezhnev. And um, you know, uh, um, listeners from outside the US or listeners uh, who are younger, um, may not have this context. Um, do you want to talk a bit about, you know, like the 1970s? Uh, seems like the strategy that Nixon pursued with Soviet Union. Uh, there are some good parallels to that, what's happening now. So maybe, you know, this might be an interesting place for us to start. Yes, it's a great question. I've spent a lot of time working on this. I wrote a whole book about Henry Kissinger 
and his approach to strategy. I've written a lot about Nixon and Brezhnev as well. Um, I think what's what's interesting, uh, especially for, for, for people thinking about this history today, are three things. First, uh, Nixon, the American president in the early 1970s, and Leonid Brezhnev, the leader of the Soviet Union in the early 1970s, recognized that their competition was becoming self-defeating mm. and that they had a lot of common interests, even though they were rivals. And they tried to create some ways of cooperating as they also continued to compete. Yeah. And so here's the point. It's not either or. If we think about the U.S.-China relationship today or the India-China relationship today, too often people will say, well, are you going to cooperate or are you going to compete? Mm. The genius, to some extent, of Kissinger and Nixon and Brezhnev was figuring out a structure where they could continue to compete for influence, for example, in the third world, but they could cooperate on trade. They could cooperate on nuclear arms control and things like that. Right. So that's that's one thing that I think is, is, is a historical insight from their experience. Second, I tried to show that personal relationships matter. Yeah. Uh, they built personal relationships. Uh, we can sometimes undervalue the individuals and the role individuals play in building relationships. And then one final point uh, that I find uh, incredibly important in this is that um, it, it, principles matter too. Hmm. You have to be able to uh, convey to your rival that even though you're working with them, there are things you care about. Uh, Nixon and Kissinger were able to convey that there were important issues, particularly about European security that they cared deeply about. And the Soviet Union had issues it cared about. And you are not um, giving in to a bad regime when you work with them to support your principles uh, in ways that help both societies bring stability and hopefully change that's useful for both societies. Yeah, and principles um, are consistent, right? So anytime you are not able to articulate and and be consistent around a, a framework of principles, uh, you are probably negotiating from a position of um, uh, lack of strength. I, I agree 100%. I agree. And one of the things Kissinger does very well, people think of him as this arch realist. He is, of course, to some extent. But as I point out in that piece that you that you dis discussed and also in my book about Kissinger, he really does believe in creating what he calls a structure of principles, rules of the game. Yes. Uh, that create stability and create bounds for safe competition. Yeah, and the other thing that struck me, Jeremy, and I don't, I, I, uh, I don't know much about history, but the personal diplomacy angle here, um, you know, which is really well articulated um, diplomacy in, in, you know, toward uh, through various channels. So there is a well choreographed uh, diplomacy going on in the background. Uh, it is not just about personal relationship between two people. In other words, you know, just being good at deal making is not going to be sufficient to actually get something done, right? I I agree. It it is as with everything in business, in policy, in scholarship. It's about relationships, and it is about building trust. And and you can trust. You can have a trusting relationship with an entity that you still see as a rival. And and that is what uh, Kissinger and Dobrynin, uh, who is the Soviet ambassador to the United States, they build a trusting relationship, yeah. which means that they can work together not to cover things up, but to make progress on issues and to sometimes act in ways that allow for certain confidences about certain issues to make progress. Um, and that's really important. If you don't have trust, it's hard to work with other countries. 
Yeah, and I find it fascinating uh, that uh, you know during these negotiations they were talking almost on an hourly basis. Yes, <laughs> it's an incredible thing. Uh, and they were doing that without cell phones and without uh, social media. It's it's amazing. Um, and and I think that's actually also important too that um, when you're building relationships, it's emotional, um, and and some of that has to do with the face to face, which which you know is is on the one hand a challenge today. But also that's where I think we're learning in quarantine that we can use Zoom and other mechanisms to build that. Emotions are about more than the words, but how we say the words, our facial gestures, things of that sort. Right, right. Yeah. And, you know, you close this one uh, by saying personal diplomacy is important, but it only works when it builds on a strong American foreign policy consensus. It's not a single person, right? It's, it's a group of, it's a team. Uh, that's doing this. So Nixon learned that you cannot lead our democracy abroad uh, with rising opposition at home. Uh, presidential power still depends on public opinion. And what I find fascinating about this this chapter is that there are many parallels to it, <laughs> to contemporary situation. Uh, but if you really learn from what happened in the 70s, we could substantially improve our current situation, it seems to me. I agree 100%. And, and we should make the point that consensus is different from unanimity. Yeah. There, there will always be people who disagree, and that's good. That's how democracy operates. Um, but you build consensus by persuading a large number of people that what you are doing is coherent, that it's in the public interest, that it has integrity, and that you really mean it. And, and so this is why being truthful, in a sense, is very important. Political leaders always have to cut corners and to be manipulative. But people have to, if you're going to stand up for principles and build a relationship, especially with a country that's different from your own, people have to believe what you say and believe that you are encouraging all of those within your side of the relationship to follow those principles wherever possible. Right, right. Yeah, I want to jump into um, a slightly different topic. Um, so th this one, this um, article that you wrote, wrote it's uh, entitled How Presidential Empathy Can Improve Politics. Uh, and you say during the Great Depression, Americans learned a lesson. A president alone could not fix a free-falling economy or repair a deeply divided nation overnight. Such problems were larger and more complex than any one man or party or ideology. Uh, just to talk a little bit about, um, so empathy is, is uh, sometimes a bit of a nebulous term. You know, we are beginning to talk about empathy, not only in the human context, but also the, you know, the, the artificial intelligence, uh, consciousness, you know, that type of thing. So, so, so sort of define empathy for me and then make your case for that. Sure, sure. So empathy is, I think, it's, it's two things. It's, it's the aspiration to understand someone else's point of view, what they have experienced, not to evaluate it at first, but to understand, to understand before you evaluate, criticize, or valorize. So it's the effort to understand someone else's experiences that are different from your own. That's the aspiration. And then the reality is that you are acutely conscious, if you're an empathetic individual, of how your intentions and purposes can be felt differently by someone else from you. It doesn't mean you can always satisfy them, but you understand how they will see something different from you. All of those things are what we say offhand of putting yourself in someone else's shoes. 
uh, which, uh, and I'm sure you've had other guests who have talked about this. I have to say this, this is the hardest thing for successful people to do. Hmm. What, what I found as a historian is it doesn't matter whether you're a scientist, a humanist, a policymaker, a business person. When you've been very successful for a long time, you see the world in only one way because it's been rewarded time and again for you, right? <laughs> it doesn't matter what your politics are. You see the world that way, and it's very hard to understand how someone else sees things uh, differently. My argument is that that is a particular skill we have to develop and we have to keep nurturing and, and, and encouraging. And many psychologists uh, have been doing work on this. My, my colleague who I think was on your program, Art Markman, is someone who's done some, some work on this too. Yeah. Uh, I want to. I, I think. Yeah. I, sorry. I wanted to push on one thing, uh, Jeremy. Yeah. So, you know, it, it should have an evolutionary advantage, right? So, if if that is true, uh, we should see aggregate empathy increasing in society. You know, there there has to be a selection advantage. I would. Uh, I'm just making this hypothesis. Uh, well, to, maybe. Yeah. May, maybe it depends how we structure our society. I think there's an yeah. argument for that. But I think there's also an argument that we might have um, an evolutionary advantage now of building, and maybe this has always been true, building tribal loyalty mm. rather than empathy, mm. right? Because if if my future is very dependent on, let's say I'm a business person, my finding a group of, you know, five million people around the world who will buy my product or read my tweets or whatever, yeah. I, I'm reinforced in telling them what they want to hear rather than the two billion, three billion people who are not reading and not buying my product, right? And I can live, a, I can have a very successful business just with that very, what is truly a small corner of a much larger planet, right? And so I do think we, we stratification right. counteracts the, the larger evolutionary advantage of empathy by creating tribal advantages to non-empathy and instead to reinforcing a single view of the world. Right, right. Okay. And so in this paper, you know, you're, you're talking about Roosevelt and how different he was and how he approached, you know, sort of the, the post-depression era, right? Yes. You want to talk a bit about, you know, what was different then? Yeah, well, Roosevelt's one of the most extraordinary figures to study, whether you're interested in politics or not, um, because he's the rare executive um, who uh, really... Uh, spends a lot of time trying to understand people who are so different from him and finding the right words to talk to them. Um, he really took that seriously. It's the center of what really what he did. He spent an enormous amount of time, and he couldn't because of his um, his disability. He couldn't go out all across the country all the time. Yeah. People, he, he wanted people to tell him stories. He wanted to hear stories. And then he wanted to find a way to reach people and not to reach them in a way that simply uh, played to their fears, the opposite, to give them hope. And he knew that to give someone hope, someone has to feel like you understand their pain and that you at least are going to try to do something about it. And he invented a new way to communicate about this. His, his fireside chats on the radio were an alternative to what was common on the radio then, which was hate speech. Yeah. Uh, every new communications technology is always used for hate versus the <laughs> easiest thing to talk about, yeah. right? You get a lot of a uh, lot of followers very quickly. Exactly, and and <laughs> and he did he he moved toward really as president. If you listen to his fireside chats, I encourage your listeners to do this. You can Google Roosevelt fireside chats. I play these still for students from the 1930s. He spends a lot of time talking to people, putting into words what he thinks they're feeling. 
He spends very little time offering solutions. Yeah. Instead, he says, here's how I understand what you're feeling. Here's what I'm trying to do. Help me to help you. And, and I think that's what real leadership is. I think, um, and I say that because I think it's what works historically, but it's very rare because our inclination is to offer solutions before we understand. It's like, you know, we prescribe medicine before we've diagnosed the, the, the problem. Yeah, I mean, again, you know, really fascinating. So, um, yeah, blurb in your, um, in your paper, the novelist Saul Bellow, then an unemployed immigrant in Chicago recounted the powerful effect of Roosevelt's radio addresses. They literally stopped traffic and knitted diverse listeners together in a common cause. And he writes, I can recall walking eastward on the Chicago Midway on summer evening. Drivers had pulled over parking bumper to bumper and turned on their radios to hear Roosevelt. Um, you could follow without missing a single word as you strolled by. You felt joined to these unknown drivers, men and women smoking their cigarettes in silence, not so much considering the president's words as affirming the rightness of his tone and taking, re taking assurance from it. And how different a situation do we have? agree. I mean, I think it's one of the tragedies of, of our world now that um, COVID offered an opportunity, I think, for uh, leaders to do what Roosevelt did, to... Um, really try to understand the different pain and suffering that people are going through yeah. uh, health-wise, economic, and trying to actually bring people together rather than uh, asserting very strong position solutions before understanding the problem. And, and, I, and I think that's because of the short-term benefits that come from keeping your team mobilized rather than trying to reach out. It, it's always very risky to try to reach out to a larger group and, and express mm -hmm. empathy because you never know if it will work. But uh, that's the risk-taking leaders have to undertake. And, and I'm confident that a new group of leaders in our societies will try to do this. Yeah, you know, in business, sometimes we make a distinction between a manager and a leader. Uh, you know, management is a mechanistic activity. Uh, you can teach management. You, you can teach, you know, the, the tools uh, one could use to become a manager, but it's often difficult <laughs> to teach leadership, uh, and it's very different from management, right? So, if so, you know, the further up in the organization you are, if you are really a manager, a businessman, a negotiator, a deal maker, you may not have the skills to be a leader. Right. I, I in fact, I think sometimes they're opposite skills. I think. Um... Management is something, of course, all leaders have to understand, but, but management by its nature is risk-averse, yeah. and uh, management by its nature is about homo homeostasis, stability, whereas leadership, I always think of as strategic, is trying to move ahead to the next phase in our historical development, mm -hmm. uh, which is not disruption either. I think that's also misconstrued. It's not about being a disruptor. Um, it's about actually making some focused investments on bringing new groups of people and new technologies and new ideas together in a new way. And, and that's, what, that's what leaders do. And that's, that's also where they should fail successfully. I know this is a big issue in the business literature as well. Yeah. Um, you, you should be failing, though you shouldn't be failing at management, but you should be failing at trying these leaps. And, and, and maybe you, you try two or three and maybe you get one right. Same with Roosevelt. You know, he wanted to empathize and then he tried to do different things based on that empathy more of his programs failed than succeeded. It was very inefficient. 
But the only way we got to Social Security, the only way we got to building the kind of uh, American welfare state that we needed at the time was through trial and error by different efforts at leaping into new areas of historical development. Right, right. Yeah, I also felt that, you know, one can really fake empathy. Uh, you know, it's, I don't believe it's possible, right? So, you know, this is again going back to, can you teach leadership? You know, you sit down with somebody and say, these are the characteristics of good leader, you know, go do it. I, I don't think it's possible. I, I I don't know. I don't think it's possible in quite that way. Right? Yeah. I don't think it's a step by step process. And the way I think you can teach management that way, there's certain um, basic technical skills that go into it. Budgeting, for example, sure. things of that sort. But, um, you know, I, I, I uh, I'm the director of our executive leadership program at the LBJ school. And I think we can maybe not even teach, but inspire and model leadership. And yeah. one of the ways we do that is by studying those like Roosevelt who have done this. And the other way is by activating that part of one's brain, which is about trying to understand historical development and uh, trying to understand how and what kind of effort is necessary to begin to connect to people you haven't connected with before. Mm. Uh, I think actually reading literature and history is often the way uh, to do that. It's, it's interesting to me that every successful leader I've studied when you look at them, they, they're spending a lot of time uh, reading history and literature. They usually have someone else reading the uh, data. Right. They're actually looking into the humanistic side of things. And I think the higher you go, the more of a humanistic enterprise leadership is. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you touched on this. You know, I, I think of this as uh, when you have a very limited objective function, you're only thinking about, you know, one, two, three things that are important to you it's probably unlikely you can you can have a very complex concept like empathy uh, and so it's it's a problem if you were to you know sort of say you can actually change people train them make them better it's almost like getting them to expand objective function that they're so focused on yes i think that's exactly right and and what i find in some of the leaders i've worked with in our program and in other settings is um, they've untrained themselves to do this because the route to leadership is often through management jobs. Yeah. So they've had to uh, enhance those skills, that part of their brain. Very, They're usually very technically proficient, but they've lost this imaginative part of their brain. Hmm. And that's why I think, I mean, to me, teaching leadership is teaching history and the arts and literature and opening that part of our mind to see things we're not seeing as we look from the top of our organizations. Hmm. Yeah, um, this is, uh, I want to jump into another one. Um, it's entitled, The Presidency is Too Big to Succeed, uh, where you say the problems of presidential gigantism can be solved by finding the right giant. The office is dying from its own undisciplined growth. Um, could you talk a bit about, so the, you are arguing here that the, the, the powers given to the presidency and really the responsibilities the presidency has uh, grown over time and has reached a point that a single individual can't really do it anymore? Yes, I think that's right. And this is the argument I make in that piece that was published in The Atlantic and that I also make in my larger book on the impossible presidency that you, that you mentioned. Um, it, the office of the presidency was created in the 18th century uh, for a very small country 
with an executive who had very minimal responsibilities. And that's why they put so many different powers into one person. Some other historians have said that the presidency became kind of like a garbage can for all the things that Congress and the courts couldn't do. Mm. Um, but over time, the United States has become a huge country with huge complex responsibilities, which is why we've developed this huge executive office around the president now with more staff than you can even count. Um, and the problem is the office uh, has not really adjusted to that. So presidents have it, find it very difficult to prioritize. Um, they're, like many other executives, facing more and more pressure to respond to more and more issues. They don't have time. And even though they have a lot of expertise around them, they don't have the time to deploy that expertise appropriately. And some presidents, like Ronald Reagan, have tried to delegate more power, but that creates problems because, as we learned through Iran-Contra, then the people you delegate power to do things that you don't want them to do. Others, like Jimmy Carter, have tried to centralize power, and then you collapse as president. So my argument is that the one of the challenges we're seeing uh, is that uh, talented and non-talented presidents are, are failing more and more, and we need to rethink the office and perhaps do what almost every other country has done. That's uh, a democracy, and almost every other uh, every business that I know uh, create not just a president, but but maybe a, a figure who plays a role in um, serving some of the domestic issues. So like a prime minister, a presidential and a prime ministerial system. Mm. Yeah, I, I wonder, Jeremy, whether it's related to leadership again, you know. Um, so whatever, however complex a problem is or however big a problem is, if you have the right leader, he or she can, um, you know, can create a structure that will allow you to solve that problem. The, the, the issue I think we have is if you really have a manager, a, a, a manager in that job is going to fail right from day one, right? Yes. If you say, I'm going to make decision X and then, you know, I'm going to uh, measure uh, whatever comes out of it. I mean, you, can, you don't have time, as you say, to do any of that. Uh, but you have to have people underneath you, underneath you who are, um, who are in, the, in, the, in the best case scenario, more competent than you are in specialized areas, right? So if you are hiring a strategy is to get people who basically say yes to whatever you are saying, you already lost the, lost the plot, I think. Right, right. I, I think the challenge is, and this is a, a point I make to, to exactly this issue, is that uh, it's very hard for presidents to know um, which expertise they need because they're so separated from the issues. And this is a problem all executives face, right? Again, it's very different from the 18th century when the office was created, or quite frankly, the model of the business executive in the early 20th century, who the business executives of the early 20th century still lived where, with non-executives. But what's happened in our world is it's become stratified, and presidents are out of touch with the public. They don't live like you and I do, so they don't really know which experts they need for which problems. Right. And the same thing I find with business executives more and more, right? They're, they're, they're so separated in how they live, how they travel. And, and that loss of touch with the customer, with the citizen, uh, that's a real challenge. Uh, with more power, we get more isolation, which means more distortion. Right. Yeah. And if, if, if you're in sort of a normal regime where, you know, there are no discontinuities, uh, sometimes incompetence doesn't show, you know, it's uh, just like a, just like a company uh, who has an incompetent CEO, let's say, 
if economy is growing and the company is generally doing well, um, that that may not actually surface. It it is when you get a shock to the system, or some sort of a discontinuity, then you really expose yourself. Exactly, and what what I this is exactly right, and what I try to show in both the book and the article is what has happened is you get shocks now because the United States is such a big elephant around the world. Right. You get shocks to the system, pinpricks from mosquitoes uh, every minute, every day, or every at least you know all the time. And so presidents are constantly running to catch up with crises. Uh, the crises dominate normal life for presidents. What, uh, what we see with presidents and executives is that because of the number of responsibilities they have, it also multiplies the number of shocks and crises that they're facing in any given day. Plus, our modern media heightens attention to what might have been a small issue, making it a bigger issue. So as I show in the book and the article, uh, presidents spend most of their time running after crises, putting out fires that are not their priorities and not spending time on what are their priorities. If you want to lead, you have to do much more than crisis management. Most presidents are doing crisis management. Yeah, I know. Again, from a business perspective, if you are if you are getting crises, um, you know, granted, there are some external shocks you have to manage. But if, if you are getting a lot of crises in your administration, in your uh, in your business, that is symptomatic of the fact that you don't really have a stable process in place, right? Uh, because a lot of companies actually go down this track. Everybody is basically trying to put out fires. That is their life. Right. You know? right. And uh, you cannot have a business by just putting out fires. Um, you have to do something else. I agree 100%. So I want to close with your uh, piece on George Kennan. Um, and you know, this is about democracy. Um, he had some different views. You say that ten he, he worried about, um, you say, the tendencies toward materialism, moral sanctimony, and militarism frightened him in the earliest days of the Cold War when the United States simultaneously invested in consumerism and exhibited cruel intolerance. Um, you, want to, you want to set some context around what he was thinking and how it uh, finally uh, materialized? Yes. So so George Kennan, like Henry Kissinger, is one of these fascinating figures. He's a little less famous than Henry Kissinger, but he's one of these seminal figures who played a very important role in defining American foreign policy, defining doctrine, and also defining scholarship about foreign policy, an intellectual and a policymaker. He cut his teeth early in his career as someone in the U.S. Embassy in, in Moscow during World War II. He was the highest-ranking Russian speaker, the charge in the embassy. And then he was the first author of what became the American Containment Doctrine for controlling and pushing back Soviet advances around the world. Kennan was very concerned that America was much too driven by what he thought were material short-term incentives rather than longer-term interests, that our interests were in a world that was stable, with alliances, with minimal commitments, and with resources focused on a few priorities around the world. Yeah. And he believed we had a tendency to excess and a tendency to decadence. Many thinkers in the 1950s thought this. And uh, in that way, he, he anticipated many of our problems in later years of overcommitment and uh, under-resourced uh, activities from Vietnam to Iraq and elsewhere. Right. And it uh, sounds like he was really worried about uh, the system uh, as we have it is not really sustainable as designed. 
That, that's correct. He was in some ways an early environmentalist. He was definitely an early advocate of nuclear disarmament. Hmm. By the early 1980s, he was calling for a complete ban on testing and creating new weapons. Uh, and he, he was, as you say, concerned that what we were doing, because we had so many resources, was we were spending down our future, not just in terms of money, but in terms of what we were doing to the environment, how we were using technology. And he was, quite frankly, skeptical of bigness. He wanted the country to be involved in the world, but not everywhere, not trying to do everything everywhere at all times. His argument, and I've taken a lot from this as a scholar, was that strategy is about setting priorities of things you will do and things you won't do. Right. Yeah, so, so Jeremy, in conclusion, you know, um, if you were to speculate, um, and you touched on this already, so we have a, a presidential, um, you know, kind of concentration of power, the job has gotten too big. Uh, we have examples of parliamentary systems uh, in India and UK and elsewhere. Um, as you know, the parliamentary system has its own <laughs> issues. Yes. as you can see from India. Uh, so if you, if, you, if you had a blank sheet of paper and you start to redesign the U.S. system, how would it look like? Great question. I, I talk about this a little bit at the end of the impossible presidency. Um, I, I think we have to update a number of things in our system. First of all, um, we, we need a system that, uh, and this is a challenge that also India faces, a system that's actually more representative of people. Uh, our system was more representative in the past than it was today. Our Electoral College and the U.S. Senate give disproportionate power to states that have a lot of territory and very few people, and that problem has become worse mm. as certain states uh, have more and more people, and other states like Wyoming uh, that have a lot of territory have fewer people, in <laughs> fact. Right. Uh, this system needs, so I would, for example, I would not necessarily take away the distinction between the Senate and the House. But I would allow some states to have three, maybe four senators. Every state might still have two, so there's some baseline guarantee. But allow California, Texas, New York, Florida, maybe to have more senators. We also need to bring in territories that have large numbers of people that are not represented, Washington, D.C., Puerto Rico. Uh, they do not have votes in the House and the Senate. That's why when there's a hurricane in Texas, we get aid in Texas. Puerto Rico doesn't get the same kind of aid. Mm -hmm. We need to make it harder for people to gerrymander, to create districts for the House that are not really reflective of the people in them. And then I think we need a system where we don't just have a president uh, who happens to have a vice president. I think we should go back to what we had in the original founding, where we elect the president and vice president separately and empower the vice president to be more of the president, perhaps for domestic affairs, mm. and the president to be more of the president for international affairs. It would allow at least for more prioritization. And I actually think it would create less less uh, partisanship because each of them would have an incentive to get things accomplished in their particular domain. Oh, yeah, that's um, so sort of a domestic vice president and international president. Uh, is there any other country that has anything similar to that? Well, France does to some yeah. extent. Uh, Germany on a smaller scale, the German chancellor has more more authority. Um, I my. It's interesting, you know, India thought about doing this. India, of course, has a president too, but, but uh, Jawaharlal Nehru wanted both jobs. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, but the United States is the only country right now that puts so much power, the only democratic country that puts so much power in the hands of, of one person. And, and I think that's, that's a real problem. Um, I also think we need a Congress that is, that, as I said, more representative, but also more empowered. The Constitution of the United States states very clearly that only Congress can make war. 
But yet since uh, 1941, presidents have not declared war. They've just sent troops abroad and just said it's not a war. Uh, we need to give Congress more of its authority back. Right, right. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Jeremy. Thanks so much uh, for spending Th time with me. And Thank uh, you. Good luck with all your research. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. Bye.